So verse 13 tells us specifically why Jesus is praying this prayer. Jesus prays, he says, but now I come to you, speaking to the Father, and, I, and, and these things I speak in the world. In other words, I'm praying this out loud, I've prayed this so people can hear it. He says that they, speaking of the disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is praying this prayer because he wants those who know him to know the joy that he has in knowing God. The joy that God the Son has in knowing God the Father, that's the joy that Jesus is praying these men would experience. And the good news is, it wasn't just for these men. We're going to see this next week as we go into verse 20. I'll read it to you now. Jesus also says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. You know who that is? That's us. Those who have believed what the apostles have said, what the, the disciples of Jesus, the sent ones of Jesus have said, those of us who believe that, this prayer is for us. This is Jesus praying for us. It's interesting because the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, don't have any of this of Jesus' prayer in their accounts. In fact, if you read the other accounts, Luke and, and Matthew specifically, you see where Jesus is praying on the night before he gets betrayed, the night he's going to be betrayed, as I say. And as he prays that, that night, he's, that what's recorded in, in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel is this, this kind of perfect man praying as someone who's vulnerable. Praying as someone who's needing to learn to submit to God's will. And so you see, in a sense, this perfect humanity in Jesus in the other prayers in Mark's gospel, I mean in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. But here John shows us something deeper. He, he shows us not only just the perfect humanity, but the deity of Jesus. What it's like to know that, that God the Son is praying for us. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot. Ever since we started praying towards the men's retreat we had a couple weeks ago, the whole theme of the men's retreat was uh, basically how Jesus prays. And I've been thinking about this because it's one of the things that's really been helping me in my prayer life. Because I don't know about you, but I often feel guilty about how little I pray. I, I know I don't pray as much as I should. I mean, and even when I do pray, I feel sometimes it's a bit mechanical. Like, it, there should be more to it than this. Sometimes I don't do what the old Puritans used to say back in the 17th century. I don't pray until I pray. I just kind of pray. But it's interesting because when I read this and I see that Jesus prays, I have this confidence that, you know what, my prayers, is, as important as they are, God commands that I pray, calls me to pray, I need to pray, as important as that is, what gives me comfort, what gives me hope, is the fact that Jesus prays for me. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that he, always, he lives always to make intercession for me. He's praying to the Father with his words, and he's praying to the Father with his wounds. He's interceding for us. And so when, when he says this, when he prays this in John 17, he's praying a prayer that is echoed now into eternity. He's praying a prayer that, in fact, some of the things that he says, you're thinking, how can this be? And we're going to see later on where he says, I have finished the work. And we're thinking, wait a second. At this point of the story, Jesus has yet to be crucified and resurrected and descended. How can he say I finished the work? Because he's praying something that echoes into eternity. He's praying something that he still prays for us today. 
He wants us to experience His joy. He wants us to learn to enjoy a relationship with our Creator. It, we say that so often that it's kind of like, well, duh, of course I know that. But are we actually experiencing this? Are we experiencing what Jesus is praying for us for? So there's three kind of sections we're going to look at today that I believe God's going to show us how we can pray or how we can, I'm sorry, how we can benefit from the prayers of Jesus, how those things can be answered in our life that would lead us to joy that Jesus has. So going back to verse 1 of chapter 17, notice as Jesus spoke this, these words and he lifted up his eyes to heaven. It's that interesting to you. When we pray, what do we do? Bow our heads and close our eyes. Why is that? Part of its culture, part of it really is based on this idea that, you remember when Jesus told the, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee? And the tax collector lifted his eyes to heaven and basically said, God, I rock, you should bless me. To paraphrase, obviously. <laughs> he says this, and what happens? The tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat upon his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so we know we're sinners that need God's mercy. So we've learned... So when you pray, you bow your head and you close your eyes. Jesus wasn't a sinner. When Jesus prays, his eyes are wide open. He can face the Father in complete confidence. And it's important for us to see this because the Jesus who's praying for us is praying with confidence. There's no doubt in his mind that the Father is going to do these things. He knows it's going to happen. And so he prays, he says, Father... The hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. We're going to talk about that word, glorify, in a minute. He says, as you, Father, have given him, the Son, authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as he, as you have given him. You, you see what he said there? Listen, he said, Father, you've given the Son authority over all flesh. Now, so here's the kind of first thing I want to bring up. How do we begin to experience this joy that God always experiences, that God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit have always experienced? How do we begin to experience that joy? The first way is this, we have to come to know God. We actually have to come to know God. Not just know about God. Yeah, I know stuff about God. But to actually know God. You know, I know a few things about Theresa May. I'm not going to talk about those things because you'll either love me or hate me by what I say. <laughs> but I know a few things about Teresa May. You know what? I don't know Teresa May. There's a huge difference between knowing something about somebody and knowing somebody. And Jesus is praying that we would know. And he says, listen, he says, we know, and this is how, because he has the authority to give us that knowledge. You know, when the Bible talks about eternal life, we tend to think of, sort of, we think of heaven. We think of, you know, we're going to be in eternity. We're going to live for a long time. So we see, we see eternal as a quantitative word. It's a long time. But you actually can't talk about eternity as something quantitative because it's beyond time, really. So when he talks about giving us eternal life, he's not just talking about the fact that we're going to live forever. We are, because God lives forever. He's talking about a quality of life. He's talking about a quality of existence and experience that, again, the Godhead, God has always experienced, and, God, and Jesus has the authority to give to us. 
is the authority to give us this life. Interesting. Because he says in verse 3, here's what this life is. He says, and this is the eternal life. Notice that they, the disciples, may know you, the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Some, some Greek scholars say that this should read, uh, that they may know you, the only true God, even Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Like a connection between the Godhead of Jesus and the Godhead of the Father. The point is this, is that this is about, this, this word for know here is a word that literally means to continue to know. It's about a continuing relationship. Eternal life, according to Jesus, isn't just life that lasts forever, but it's life that lasts forever because it's with the God who is forever. It's a linking with Him. And so Jesus is praying for the disciples. He's saying, Father, you've given me authority to give them life and this is what that life is. Life is knowing you forever. Enjoying you forever. This is what I, I give to them. We don't want to miss this fact that Jesus is saying this happens because of his authority. It's his authority to, to give us. It's his right to give this to us. John starts this gospel this way in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It says, but as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, as many as received Jesus... To them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, that would be his character, who were born not of blood, not just of a, of a, a woman, uh, not just of human birth, nor of the will of flesh. In other words, you're not getting this new life because you're trying really hard. Nor of the will of man. It's bigger than just a choice you make, but of God. Jesus is the one that says, you belong to the Father. Jesus is the one that says, live. Remember in John chapter 11 when Lazarus, one of Jesus' close friends, had died and he goes to the grave? And his disciples are saying, well, don't waste your time. You know, he's, he's dead. He stinketh. He says in the old King James, he stinketh. You know, it's hard to decompose. Really kind of gross. Don't resurrect him. Hell, Lord. Don't do something now. But what happens? Jesus says two words. Lazarus, Rise. What happens? Homeboy comes stumbling out of the tomb, wrapped up in grave clothes. Jesus speaks and life comes. That's what happens with us, guys. Listen, God the Spirit draws us to Jesus. He shows us how we need Jesus. This is what God does. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, but something about who Jesus is, you're drawn to, you need to know something. That is God drawing you to Jesus. God's doing the work to draw you to Jesus. He draws us to Jesus, and then we realize, man, I need Jesus. And we cry out, God, I need you. You know what God says? You know what Jesus says? He says, life. And you who are dead, come to life. That's his authority. And so Jesus is saying, he's praying this, Father, you know what? I want these guys to know you. So when he says in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth, I have finished the work which you have given me to do, he's talking about the, the reality that, that the work of Jesus, according to Jesus, was to just always obey the Father. And Jesus obeyed perfectly. He's continuing to obey as he heads to the cross. But he brings this issue of glorified. He keeps saying glorify uh, me and as I glorify you, glorify us together. And he says in verse uh, there in verse uh, 5, he says, Father, glorify me together with yourself. 
talks about the glory which I had with you before the world was. <coughs> now, glory is one of these Bible words that we don't kind of use that much. We use it a little bit, you know. Like, do, you have, do we use a phrase here? Sometimes I forget because I've lived in England so long. I can't remember if a phrase is an American phrase or a British phrase. But do we use a phrase here, no guts, no glory? Not really. Okay, that's a better word. Yeah. Paul, who's a military guy, says, yeah. Uh, no guts, no glory. It's the idea that unless you try hard, you're not going to experience in the glory. No one's going to like make you a hero. It's kind of the idea. So we kind of use the word glory a little bit. We know it kind of means that glory means to kind of exalt somebody or, or, or make them, you know, say, oh, they're really grand or something like that. But actually the word is something more specific. The word glory actually means to manifest the unique value of something. So like, you know, I've said this before lots of times, and hopefully I have this memorized by now, that the Proverbs say things like, you know, the glory of a young man is his strength, the glory of an old man is his gray hair, or his wisdom. Is the idea. So there's something that manifests when you're young, you get strong. It's funny, my, my son Christian, who's uh, just turned 17, he's a skinny dude, in case you, you don't know, he's really skinny. He's got some... Strengthen those skinny old arms is. And we'll wrestle around sometimes. And I'm like, gosh, you're so strong for how skinny. I can't remember how strong is how skinny is. And that's part of just being a young man. He's growing. He's getting stronger. It's the glory of being young. And then, then you see other people who just the glory is gray hair. No hair. It's supposed to be invisible. <laughs> but there's something that's being manifested is the point. Something that's being shown is the point. And what Jesus is saying when he talks about this glory stuff, he's saying, Father, listen. He's saying, Father, I want these people to see you. So help them to see me so that they can see you. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about in John chapter 14 where Jesus has to say to Thomas, there was one of the disciples, and Thomas says, oh Lord, just show us the Father. We just want to see God the Father. And Jesus said, Thomas, have I been with you so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What's also amazing about this is that when he's talking about glorifying <coughs> me, what he's asking him to do, he's saying, Lord, glorify me through my death and resurrection and ascension of the Think about this. He said, I want you to be seen. God, show yourself through my death. So when Jesus dies, he dies in a way that blows people away. Even the centurions who, who crucify him, who beat him and then crucify him, they say, no man's ever died like this. There's something about Jesus and the way he handles death that blows them away. And these guys are professional executioners. They see in him something glorious, something unique, something that's manifested as he's dying. One of the things we have to understand about the death of Jesus, according to the scriptures, when Jesus dies, what's happening there is, is that uh, it, it's not just a, a, a crime against Jesus, though there was a crime against Jesus. He was an innocent man and he was being crucified. But there, what was happening there was Jesus choosing to be crucified and the Father pouring out a punishment on the Son. That's kind of heavy to think about, isn't it? The Father is pouring out punishment on the Son. Do you know why? Because the Son is absorbing a punishment that we're supposed to get. 
if it helps you to think of it this way, think of it this way. God is pouring out punishment on himself. He's absorbing all the sins we've done against him. He's absorbing all that so he can say you're forgiven. This is why Jesus says he prays on the cross about the people who are crucified. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's absorbing that. That is manifesting something amazing about our God. And the creator of God, who always does good, who's given us every good and perfect gift, whom we rarely thank, whom we snub our nose at, whom we act as if he doesn't exist, who we offend daily by how badly we treat other people and treat him, that God would say to us, you're forgiven. How can he do that? He can do that because he absorbed all of our sin for us. This is what Jesus is asking for. Glorify yourself. Manifest, Father. Manifest yourself. Show how good you are, how gracious you are, how merciful you are, how holy you are. Because God's so perfect that sin will not abide in his presence. It has to be judged. But God's so loveless. He sent that judgment on his side. This is the God that Jesus is praying to come to know. Not just a God who's made everything, and not just a God in some generic sense. Not just an idea of, yeah, we're monotheists. We believe in one God, not many gods. That's what we do in the West. Yeah, that's us. Not just some sort of cultural, mental ascension. But a reality that this God, who's made everything, showed how good He is by clothing himself in human, in human flesh, living a perfect life, dying a death on purpose, rising from the dead, and ascending back to heaven in front of many, many witnesses. Why? Because he wants us to know him. Now, I know for a fact every single one of you here today, every single one of you knows something about God. You know what? I just told you something about God. So even if you've never been to church before in your life, you've now learned something about God. The question that you need to answer, that you need to be honest about is, do you know God? You know about God, but do you know Him? Do you have a relationship that you can pray to the creator of the universe and say, Father, Father, do you understand what you've been given in Christ, what you've been offered in in Christ. Do you understand what Jesus was praying for? We're not waiting on that point. We're going to All right. <laughs> That's the first, the first way we begin to see the answer to this prayer, to experience the joy that, that, that Jesus has always experienced with the Father, is that we come to know God personally. We come to have an ongoing relationship with Him. The second thing, though, is as we are kept by God, because as you, you who already know God, you already have a relationship with God, you know how easy it is to mess up, don't you? You know how daily, on a daily basis, your faith can waver, you can make mistakes, you can fail to love. You know what that's like. How is it you keep going? This is why God keeps you. Listen to how Jesus prays for us, verse 6. He says, I've manifested my name to these men whom you've given me out of the world. He says, they were yours, you gave them to me. Notice what he says about them. They have kept... 
your word. That's what he says among the disciples. Verse 7, he says, They have known all things which you gave me are from you. Verse 8, he says, They have received those words, and they know surely that I have come forth from you. Also, verse 8, they believe that you sent me. You see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, as he's praying, he's saying, Father, these that you've given me, these are those that believe. And they trust me. They take me at my word. Now, this is, a, this is interesting. Seriously. Because if you pay any attention to the Gospels, you know what you see? The disciples mess up over and over and over again. Jesus tells them stuff and they're going, yeah, right on, Jesus. And then look at each other and say, I have no idea what he's talking about. Over and over again. They blow it. They don't believe. At one point, Peter, one of the disciples, rebukes Jesus when Jesus tells him something that's true. No way, Jesus, that can't be true. Yet Jesus is speaking so graciously about them. You know what he's doing? Jesus is validating, listen, he's validating the disciples developing faith. Isn't that great news? Isn't that great? The Lord doesn't look at me and say, why don't you trust me more? I can't believe it. You've messed up again. How clear do I have to be? That's how we need to be as parents. That's not how our Jesus is. He validates our developing faith. The fact that we believe. He, he loves us to pray. Father, I believe. Help my unbelief. When, when Jesus prays to the Father, He says, listen, these guys keep my word. Now he knows, and the Father knows, they don't do that perfectly. But he, he knows, and the Father knows, that these men, their faith was in Jesus. Even if they didn't understand what they are believing him for, even if they didn't fully even understand who he was at this point, Jesus saw the faith that was being developed in their hearts, that he was developing in their hearts. And he says, Father, these are ours. This isn't us. When we put our trust in him, in John chapter 8, Jesus says uh, to the disciples, to the, the Jews who actually believed that he was the Messiah, who was the king, he says to them, he says, you're my disciples indeed if you abide in my word. He says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will what? According to Jesus, the truth is definable. You can know what it is. It's not some weird concept that nobody really knows. According to Jesus, the truth can be known and it's liberated. That's what he says. These disciples were learning to be set free by the things that Jesus was teaching them. And even though they had a long way to go, especially at the point that he's praying this prayer, they're being validated before the Father by the prayer of Jesus. Now, if you drop down to verse 9, what happens? He says, I pray for them. Notice what he says, listen. He says, I, I, I do not pray for the world, but for those who you've given me. Now, Jesus is saying, I'm praying for these guys that believe. I'm not praying for those that don't believe. That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love those who don't believe. He's just saying, at this point, what I'm praying now is meant for these guys who trust me. It's meant to be encouraging for these guys who trust me. Let me make something really clear to you. If you don't yet believe, it doesn't mean that you can't. You do have a choice to make. But it does mean if you don't yet believe these kind of assuring promises that Jesus is talking about don't yet apply to you. They can apply to you. If you put your faith in Jesus, but they don't yet apply to you. 
But he says, Lord, I, I, I pray for these that are mine. Verse 10, he says, all are mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. Again, a very gracious thing to say. He says, no, now I am no longer in the world, but these in the world, and I have come to you. Notice he says, Holy Father. That's important because it's the only time in all New Testament where Jesus says, Holy Father. Holy Father, keep through your name those uh, whom you have given me. They may be one as we are. The fact that Jesus prays with this sort of intensity, Holy Father, that's really what's coming out. Obviously, the Father is always holy. Jesus always sees the Father as morally perfect and pure. But he's, he's addressing with this intensity. And it shows how important it is to Jesus that these men be kept. He says in verse 12, I have kept them in your name. He says, those who you gave to me I have kept. None's been lost except the son of perdition. That's a reference to Judas. And the scripture to be fulfilled, you can look this up later, it's basically a reference to a song that talks about how one of the Messiah's chosen friends would betray him. But here's the point, okay? The point is this. Jesus never loses anyone who trusts him. Maybe you came to church today and you are barely hanging on to faith. You feel like Man, I think I believe. I kind of believe. I don't know. I know that I should believe, and if I'm going to believe, I should believe in Jesus, but I don't know. Maybe you're just hanging on. And you're thinking, gosh, I really should have more faith in this Jesus. I really should trust Him more. If you're in that place, let me tell you this. If you trust Him, more than now. Jesus made a promise in John chapter 10. He said, my sheep hear my voice. He says, my sheep hear my voice. They come to me. He talks about how none will snatch them out of my It's amazing to me. It's amazing how I'll meet somebody who I've known as confessed Christ. And, and then they'll walk away from God for years. Then when I see them, they'll almost, they, they almost cannot deny they know. Oh, yeah, I, I'm not really a Christian anymore. I mean... It's not that I don't believe. I know I, I believe. I just, you know, I don't, I don't really walk in and call myself a Christian, but I, I know I have to believe. It's like they can't not believe. It's like they, they, they are running from God, and they're usually miserable people when they're doing this, but they can't not believe. Why? Because God has them. And as much as they're trying to jump out of his hand, he squeezes and tight. And he chases them, and he brings them back to himself. We're kept by God. So I'll tell you what, there's nothing more joyful than knowing you're being kept by God. Even when that keeping means you're chasing Him. I've gone through some pretty tough things as a believer. Really, some heavy-duty things have happened to me. Almost always because of the stupid choices I've made as a person. But I'll tell you, even when that chasing, that discipline that comes from God has been painful, it's painful, let me tell you, and severe. There's a joy and a comfort. Because that means I have a father that loves me that much. A father that won't let me keep walking down the road and bring destruction. How many of you parents 
If your kids started running, your little kids started running out the door, think of your toddlers running out the door into a busy road, how many of you would say no and grab them even if they jerk back and it might hurt a little bit? Why? Because you're not a very nice parent? No, because you love that child so dearly that you will risk temporary pain to save their lives. Don't you know your heavenly father's even better than that? Jesus is praying. Listen, he's praying. Lord, I've kept these guys. You keep these guys. Don't you know Jesus is praying that we can catch what's going to happen? What are you going to get? He's going to keep us. There's a joy, even in the midst of chasing that we can have because God keeps us. That's the second thing. Here's the third thing. Learn to experience the joy that Jesus has as we are set apart for God. If you look at what he prays in verse 14, this begins to take shape. Jesus prays, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because, notice, they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, he says. He says, Lord, I don't take, pray that you take them out of the world, verse 15. Just keep them from the evil one. But he says again in verse 16, they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This idea of being of. It's this idea that we don't belong. It's not our home. They don't belong here. If your faith is in Jesus, if you're a Jesus follower, you don't belong here. And, and it's foolish for you to try to make this your home. You're just passing through. So don't litter, don't feed the bears. You know? Just you're passing through. It's not your home. I love this because the author of Hebrews talks about Abraham having this very attitude. God calls Abraham to follow him. Tells him, I'm going to make you a mother of many nations. He's going to have countless descendants. He, he never actually sees that promise fulfilled in his lifetime. Not, not to, the, to the point that God intended. But he always trusts God. And this is what that faith looks like, according to Hebrews 11. Speaking of Abraham and his wife Sarah, it says, And truly, if they had called to mind that country where they came, uh, from which they came out of, speaking of where God called them out of, they, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In other words, Abraham and Sarah knew, I don't belong here. You know that. Listen, there's nothing wrong with having a comfortable home. There's nothing wrong with feeling like this city is where I belong. There's nothing wrong with feeling a sense of home. As long as you understand, this is not ultimately your home. If you're a Jesus follower, this is not it. Isn't that good news? I don't know about you, but I have, a, I have an amazing family. And I'm not. Okay, I'm bragging. I'm bragging, but I'm bragging for a point. I'm bragging because people will look at us and go, this is a beautiful family, it's amazing, they have great kids, the wife's amazing, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, you're right, you're right. But guess what? They would all say, this, this still isn't satisfying. It's still not enough. We all long for something more than we have. We have a great family. Do you know why? We don't belong here. I love my kids. I love being my kid's dad. But guess what? I am more looking forward to being my kid's brother and sister forever. 
I love being my Mary Desera. She's an amazing woman. But we're brother and sister. Jesus is, is saying, Lord, don't take them out. But just, Lord, they, they need to hear this that I'm praying. Just like I don't belong here, they don't belong here. Now here's I, I also some even more great news. Even though we don't belong here, when Jesus comes back, guess what? He restores the whole world and then we do belong here. Because then, it's as it's supposed to be. It's then it's the world that we all want. Verse 17, Jesus prays this. He says, sanctify them. Set them apart. The word means set them apart. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, almost unanimously, every scholar sees this idea of your word speaking of the scriptures. That the written word is the very truth of God. Now, when he says, set, that sanctify them by the word, when he's praying that, He's wanting those who hear him. He's obviously praying according to what the Father wants, according to the Father's will. But he's also wanting those to hear him to understand that the written word of God is true. The scriptures are true. This is why we spend some time studying this book. We believe this book is true. Not just accurate, but true. That God has breathed out these words. They have power. It changes. But he also says, if you skip down to verse 19, he says, And for their sake, I sanctify myself, Jesus prays, that they may be sanctified by the truth. Now, it's interesting because the Bible is really clear that Jesus is the Word. John begins his gospel that way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in the same chapter, in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Talking about Jesus. He's the Word incarnate, you might say. And this is an important thing for us to see that, that Jesus says, Look, the truth is in the Word, but it's me who validates the truth. It's me who is the subject of the truth. It's important for us to know what the Scripture says. But if we see what the scripture says and we never see how that leads us to Jesus, we don't understand what the scripture says. Are you following me? We're set apart according to God's word, but we're not just set apart to have knowledge of scripture. We're set apart to know the living God. We're set apart to understand who he is and what he desires for us and for us. Now let's look at verse 18. Jesus prays, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Now remember, Jesus already said, he already prayed, Lord, don't take them out of the world. Why? Because he had a, he had a purpose for them. You, you guys that already know Jesus, ever, don't you ever wish that, you know, when you, as soon as you came to know Jesus, you could have gone straight to heaven? Uh, am I the only person that ever feels that way? You know, I feel that way, you know. But as soon as I came to know Jesus, you know who he really was, this is it. It's all about Him. I can't wait to know Him. I can't wait. I remember the night I got saved. And, and, and know this, in my story, I knew nothing of, of Christianity. I knew nothing of religion at all. I grew up in a totally sort of secular home, no religion at all. And when I go 
to, to church and hear the gospel for the first time, and I had this radical conversion experience. I remember driving home in my friend's car and saying, you know, if we crash today and we die, we're going to go to heaven. Isn't that awesome? And I was actually excited about that. I wanted to break the steering wheel. No, I didn't really want to die, but I just knew this is, this is a great thing. I couldn't wait to be there. I knew that that was my home. I knew that before anybody come to that. I just knew that with him is my home. He left me here. He didn't take me home. It's been 30 years now. I want to go. I want to see him. You know why he left me here? It's the reason he left you here. He sent this out the same way the Father sent him out. Why did the Father send the Son? Why did Jesus come? To bring people into a saving knowledge of God. Why does God leave us here? To bring people into a saving knowledge of God. You know, Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, he used to say, Christianity is like the measles. You have to have it before you can give it away. Have you been infected with Jesus? Give it away. Be contagious. Let it spread. <coughs> That's why you're here. Jesus prays for us that we would experience His joy as we come to know God, as we experience the being kept by God, and as we're set apart for God's purpose, which is to bring many people to know. Is this prayer being answered in your life?